Why has Taiwan got real democracy, and why is Hong Kong unlikely to get it? In the wake of the recent local elections on Taiwan, a double paradox has become more obvious. On the one hand, because Taiwan is fast developing a real democracy, Hong Kong becomes even more unlikely to do the same thing. On the other hand, because Hong Kong will be prevented from developing a real democracy, it becomes the more likely that Taiwan will sustain and enhance its democratic development. Of course, it goes without saying that the paradox rests on the realities of geography. China's mainly verbal assertions of Beijing's sovereignty over Taipei are inevitably limited by the hundred odd miles of the Taiwan Strait. To overcome that natural handicap would require the People's Liberation Army, Navy, and Air Force to mount a military operation far larger and far more extensive than the huge D-Day operation whereby Allied forces began the reconquest of France in 1944. The only obstacle that China faces, if it decided to directly impose its authoritarian will on Hong Kong, is the not insubstantial one imposed by history. But if Beijing ever felt that its autocratic rule needed to be asserted in Hong Kong, it would require a far smaller force than the one that was eventually put together to conduct the Tiananmen massacre in June 1989. Beijing has not felt the need to assert its anti-democratic will in the last three months, with another Tiananmen-style massacre of student protesters, because it has been able to calculate that the Hong Kong democracy protesters, after being initially successful, have been aiding Beijing's anti-democratic cause instead of weakening or demolishing it. But China's communist rulers know that a viable democratic system in Hong Kong could have a strong demonstration effect within China's restive provinces. So the People's Republic has to inhibit Hong Kong's democratic growth. But the more it does that, it will increasingly encourage Taiwan to improve and strengthen its democratic system. Regarding current developments within Hong Kong, I've long had reservations regarding the relevance of occupying techniques of protest in the Hong Kong environment. Whenever I go to Central, luckily I live in Lantau, I come away thinking that the place is already over-occupied. That further adding to the normally abnormal human pressure in Central is unlikely to have any positive political results. The one Asian occasion when occupying protest techniques have been successful was, of course, earlier this year in Taiwan. Then there was a neat but unusual merger of issue and place. The students were aroused by the KMT government's bill seeking to increase trade and economic exchanges between China and Taiwan. It touched upon the always sensitive, never yet resolved issue of how close relations should be between communist China and non-communist Taiwan. The students suddenly occupied Taiwan's parliament, the legislative yuan, when that bill was due to be debated. Their demands were specific and limited. They wanted the bill withdrawn from consideration. 
their occupation of Parliament would end once that was conceded. The occupation was limited, disciplined and restrained. At one point, what appeared to be a rival group of students sought to occupy the nearby executive yuan, a move which the police, after a night-long struggle, was able to frustrate. But one Sunday, the support of public opinion for the students occupying the legislative yuan was heavily underlined when an estimated 500,000 citizens marched through the streets of Taipei. Until then, President Ma Ying-jeou's administration had opposed compromise. After that, Speaker Wang Jinping helped craft a compromise under which the trade bill was withdrawn from consideration and then the student occupiers withdrew from Parliament. Since then, the issue has languished along with the original bill. As far as I can see, a replacement bill has not yet been introduced. In Hong Kong, there has been no neat merger between an important issue and a place to be occupied. What specific issue is clearly focused by occupying unconnected parts of Hong Kong and Kowloon? The Occupy Central movement does not say, but instead demonstrates a lack of limits and sometimes also a lack of restraint. The only parallel with the Taiwan situation would have been if protesters had waited until the bill formalising the conditions for the 2017 chief executive election was placed on LegCo's schedule and then demonstrators had quickly occupied LegCo and refused to move until the bill was either withdrawn or changed. If, at the same time, a couple of Sunday marches had been organised, during which, even by conservative police calculation, a million or more Hong Kongers marched through the streets in sympathy with the occupiers, well, that would have produced an interesting situation when the current chief executive and even the Politburo in Beijing might have agreed to think again. In this regard, of course, that's not the way it was. The limited action and careful calculation that characterised the birth of the sunflower movement in Taiwan have been almost entirely lacking amidst the gimmickry and self-promotion of the umbrella movement. Instead of shrewd calculation, it has been infinitely sad to see the seeming political blindness of Hong Kong's democratic demonstrators. After their initial seeming success in protesting on the streets against the National People's Congress decision to impose electoral constraints upon Hong Kong's first election of a chief executive through Universal Franchise in 2017, and for a while arousing larger support on the streets, the protesters and Occupy organisers seemingly lost their way. They were blind to the ever-expanding inconvenience and the ever-increasing cost to Hong Kong citizens of their dubious occupation of Mong Kok's shopping and business centre, of their questionable occupation of part of Causeway Bay shopping centre, and their unacceptably over-extensive occupation of the Admiralty Administrative and Business Headquarters. For all too many Hong Kong residents, prospects were reduced, health was affected, earnings and savings were diminished, and energies lessened as these occupations were pointlessly but endlessly continued throughout October and November. 
Yet the demonstrators and those who purported to lead them were blind to the fact that they were seeking to expand belief in democracy through massive inconvenience and excessive irritation and not a little suffering for the aged, the ill and the poverty-stricken. They sought to arouse support for consent of the governed by giving democracy a bad name. If the opinion pollsters are correct, then almost irreparable damage has been done to the democratic movement in Hong Kong and the prospects for democracy candidates at forthcoming elections have been radically reduced. Above all, perhaps, the demonstrators, the would-be Democrats, were blind to the underlying reason why court injunctions to vacate areas occupied were not quickly implemented, as they should have been. Why the police were not quickly and properly ordered to restore order and see to it that the fast ebb and flow of normal Hong Kong existence was carefully sustained. The anti-Democrats, the powers that be in both Beijing and Hong Kong, soon saw that their course was being strengthened by the blindness of those ostensibly demonstrating for democracy. That is surely why they allowed the occupations of Admiralty, Causeway Bay and Mongkok to run on for so long, occupying for the sake of occupying with little if any clear-cut political focus. Did anyone seriously consider for a moment that the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress cares so much about the smooth flow of traffic in Hong Kong that it would revoke their political decisions in order to achieve an end to congestion? Many rejoiced in the fact that a civil disobedience campaign accompanied the occupations. What was lost sight of was the fact that civil disobedience campaigns are supposed to persuade citizens of the virtues of the course being pursued, not to be part of a movement which annoys or irritates citizens. Finally, back to the paradox with which we started these reflections, well illustrated by the results of the 2014 local elections in Taiwan last Saturday, when 11,130 local mayors, councillors and other key local officials were elected right across the country. Prior to the election, the Chinese National Party, the Kuomintang, held 15 key mayor or magistrate positions and the opposition Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, held only six. After the election, it was the reverse. The Kuomintang was reduced to six key positions while the DPP held 13 the DPP also supported the new mayor of the capital city, Taipei, elected as an independent. The media misreported the election as being a drubbing, a major defeat for the KMT, but a close examination of the rest of the results revealed that it was hardly that. The KMT won over the DPP in the four other categories of local officials – narrowly by 386 seats to 291 seats in all the city councils, one-sidedly by 1,794 seats to 390 among village and borough chiefs. But the DPP did make substantial gains right across the nation and the election clearly saw the emergence of Taiwan as a two-party democracy, in large part thanks to China. Foreign relations was not an issue in the local elections, but China's presence definitely intruded. 
On the one hand, there was the lingering aftermath of the student occupation of the legislative yuan, arising because of popular fears in Taiwan that China trade could lead to Chinese political dominance. On the other hand, there was the clear image emerging from Hong Kong of where close ties with China could lead. Three months of demonstrations against limits on democracy imposed by Beijing? And at that very moment, Chinese President Xi Jinping chose to stress that the rule under which Hong Kong was being governed, one country, two systems, would also apply to Taiwan. Fears of Chinese dominance naturally arise in Taiwan. It does not help for China's leader to personally arouse them.